What up, everybody? This is Searching for Political Identity. I'm Brian Escal, your host. I am very excited to welcome my guest today, Cameron Wright. For anybody who was hoping that my first guest would be my cousin or someone from college, sorry to disappoint you, but I have an incredible guest today. It's going to take me a few minutes to get through his resume, so bear with me, but I think you'll be very interested to learn about what he's been up to, what he's been doing with his life, and I think it's going to add a lot of context to the conversation we're going to have today about America, current events, the Constitution, and all that jazz. So without further ado, let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Cameron Wright. First of all, let me acknowledge his service to the country as a naval officer working on warships and working with nuclear. He's a pretty serious guy and pretty impressive guy. And that's about all I'll say about his service. But I want to thank him for his service right off the top. And also thank him for being here and helping me with this second episode. So let me just get right into his legal and academic credentials here. In 2019, while in law school, Cameron was a legal intern at the Navy Defense Service Office West, where he assisted Navy Defense Counsel in defending sailors at courts martial, including direct involvement in the defense of a high-profile murder trial at general courts martial, and researching, drafting, and winning case-dispositive motions on questions of military and constitutional law. That same year, in 2019, he was an extern at the United States District Court for the Southern District of California, working in the chambers of the Honorable William V. Gallo, a magistrate judge. There, Cameron drafted four published reports and recommendations, opinions, and orders of the court, and he facilitated early neutral evaluation and mandatory settlement conferences. Skipping to 2020, still while in law school, he externed at the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit under, in the chambers of the Honorable Kenneth K. Lee, a circuit judge. There, he assisted in the drafting of a 66-page published opinion and four unpublished opinions, circulated multiple bench memos, and provided recommendations on over 80 petitions for unbanked review. Lastly, well, not lastly, but in, also in 2020, he interned um, for the staff judge advocate to the commander of the Naval Surface Forces, where he assisted the force judge advocate in investigating and convening general courts martial, reviewing non-judicial punishment appeals, conducted ethics reviews, and advised the staff and principal of a three-star admiral responsible for all surface combatant warships in the U.S. Navy. Okay, I could go on and on about his academic credentials, all the classes in which he's received the top grade, because in law school, every letter-graded course, um, if you get the top grade in that letter-graded course, it gets posted to a national website for law schools, and you get recognized. And Cam it just goes on and on, the classes that Cameron has achieved that honor in. So this guy is no slouch, and I'm very excited to have him on the program. So Cameron, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And before we jump right into our conversation about all things America, Constitution, uh, let me first say that nothing Cam says today reflects the views of the Department of Defense, the Department of the Navy, or has any military association whatsoever 
we are two individuals having a conversation about the country. With that said, Cam, before I jump right in, well, we jump right in and dive deep, let me just tell you a quick anecdote that I think is going to make your, it's not going to make your blood boil because I know you're too calm and too civil, but um, I think it's a good way to open this. So I got dragged wine tasting two weekends ago. And anyone who knows me, anyone who knows me knows that I don't drink and I'm not spending several hours anywhere outside my apartment. <laughs> so it was funny that I got out there, but I got dragged out there. We had a great time and we spent several hours wine tasting. And then afterwards, we went to somebody's house for a little after party, just had some pizza, whatever. And I met several people there. And one of them was a guy named Alex. I'd say he's probably 35 to 36 years old, uh, wife and kid, young child, very, very nice couple, very nice guy. We're talking, we started talking about video games and the virtual reality thing he had just been playing. And then he asked me what I'm up to. And I said, well, I th I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And we started talking politics. I told him I don't listen to podcasts. I don't but he does. And so he was giving me some tips and some things to check out. So we start talking politics and he's a Bernie bro. And I say that respectfully. He's a Bernie guy. And that's just easy to identify. And let me just be clear. The whole point of this show for me is to get past the labels. We're here to pursue intellectual ideas. I know you are. I am too. And I think people are hungry for diving right past the labels, skip those, get to the heart of the ideas, and let's take it issue by issue and figure out where we stand. And let's just have an open conversation. How could that be bad? That's the premise of this show, right? And so we start talking politics and a little bit about Bernie and just what direction the country should go. And I said to him, hey, Alex, what about, you know, it's interesting about how progressives are trying to achieve certain things today, as they have been for a long time, of course. And it almost seems like it doesn't matter what the founding fathers thought. And so I said to him, what about the founding fathers? And you know what his response was? He goes, oh, who gives a blank about what they would have thought? Who cares? Who cares what some people 200 something years ago would have said about the issues of today? And I didn't say anything to him. I didn't want to be rude. But in my head, I'm like, man, how could that be the right reaction? How could who cares what they would have had to say be the right reaction? So no matter where you are in the spectrum, if you are you know, in love with originalism and the founding fathers, or if you're a progressive, how could the right answer be who cares what they said? That, to me, is missing something and part of the problem. So with that said, let's jump right into it. Searching for political identity, we're all here, many of us are here trying to figure out where we stand. And your reaction to that is, let's talk about the role of government, right? Um, and before I ask you about your thoughts on what the proper role of the government is, and we'll talk federal government, state government, whatever, but let me just throw in something I picked up in law school is this concept of negative and positive rights. And we learn about, um, in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, everyone's familiar with the Bill of Rights, and it's basically the Ten Commandments of the modern day. And I'm not trying to be cute here or bring religion into it, but these, I'll call them commandments, basically say the government shall not do this. And I believe it's 
you'll correct me. The federal government shall not do X. Basically, there are prohibitions on what the federal government can do. The Constitution, we all know there was a big debate and some of the people said, you know what, if we're going to grant federal government even this limited power that we're granting them, we need to protect individual rights and liberties. And so the concept, um, I think Justice Clarence Thomas is the one who was really into this concept of negative rights. And well, that's where I heard it. And he basically says, America is founded on the concept of negative rights, meaning there are commandments what the federal government shall not break. And then the modern trend today among progressives, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, of course, I'm just asking the questions, but the progressives of, of today would say, the government owes us something. And that's where you get into positive rights. No longer are we talking about prohibitions on what the government can't do. We're talking about what the government must provide. That's a huge shift a huge shift. We're talking welfare. We're talking all these entitlement programs. That's the big divide. Some people um, don't understand the distinction between negative and positive rights. And that's probably a huge, huge factor here. So Cam, what do you think, uh, what are your thoughts on the proper role of government? I mean, I mean, it's a broad question, but where do you want to jump into this? You have progressives, you have uh, Republicans, before we even get into the Supreme Court history and all that and the New Deal, generally, what are your thoughts on political identity today and the role of government? Uh, well, Brian, there, there's a lot uh, to unpack there. As you, as you alluded, it's a very broad question. Um, I think there, there are certain uh, perspectives and distinctions we should we should kind of lay out with this framework positive versus negative rights is certainly one of them um and i'm glad you hit on that early and a, a lot of uh people in the country today don't even think about is this something that the government should be prohibited from doing or is this something they should be compelled to do for me um slight anecdote there the the country of hungary is actually having a real hard problem with this positive rights complex right now coming out of the soviet bloc where the state provided um, many basic necessities um, throughout the Cold War. All of a sudden, with the falling of the Iron Curtain and Hungary trying to get on its own feet, uh, the, the, the judiciary there is trying to enforce this positive rights mandate. Uh, and the, the legislature and the executive are the ones pushing back, saying this is not part of the role of government. So th that is one distinction, is in the role of government, are there basic rights that the that the government is entrusted with conferring upon us. And the, the traditional American view of our constitution is no. Our constitution, the structure of our government is designed to promote liberty and preclude government from infringing on it. And that kind of gets to the second distinction I think here is, is one of a structural argument versus a political argument. Are we discussing a policy question, like how to spend tax dollars, or are we discussing the actual structure of the arrangements of our government powers? Um, and I think that the latter question is one that has not been asked or delved into enough in the public sphere for a long time. Um, the basic separation of powers enshrined by the vesting clauses in our constitution, you know, say that Congress creates law, the president enforces the judiciary, uh, decides on the interpretation. But more and more throughout our history, you see 
a great blurring of those lines between those separated government institutions. And so one, one question first is, based on the structure, who decides? When we start talking about policy questions, which branch of government is it entrusted to? And we have to first agree on that before we can decide what the proper policy should be. More and more, the trend is political activists or those trying to, to reform policy are going to go to whichever branch provides the least resistance, including the judiciary. And, and a lot of people will call it politics by litigation, where if we can get a case or a controversy in front of the right judge, we can get a judgment as to what the law is or what it should be, rather than through the political process, through elections and through lobbying our, our representatives. So I think that's an important distinction first is when we talk about the role of government uh, and what policies the government should embrace, who should be embracing those policies and to what institutions should we entrust those decisions? Um, so I think that's kind of an initial matter that, that we should use as a perspective for the rest of our discussion. Um, I don't know if that completely got to your question about what the role of government is, but it, it is parsed out into, well, which part of the government? Uh, what is the role of each part and each branch? Um, and that's something in and of itself is a disagreement today in the, in the political sphere. And I'll just skip to the very end here and ask a question that ultimately we're getting to, which is, are we willing to sacrifice, and this is your question, ultimately, are we willing to sacrifice the structure of the Constitution to achieve political ends? And a lot of people, like you said, they'll just blow past that initial distinction that you just made between who should decide. They just don't consider it because, well, that's an annoying question. I'm trying to get something done. Why do I don't need to bother myself with who should decide. I'll just go to the branch with least resistance. Like you said, you want to get something done, now, I imagine the framers were expecting people to have that kind of mentality of, I want it done, I want it done now. And so my assumption is that they put those vesting clauses in there to make it clear which branch is supposed to do what or does what, not supposed to, this branch does this. But like you said, it's becoming so blurred and that's to the advantage of people who want to activists. It's to the advantage of activists. Well, yeah, I, you know, I think I think the Constitution originally had within the first few years of, of, of us living under our new Constitution into the 1800s, we had the 11th and 12th Amendments. Uh, and very quickly, we, we realized that we had a couple of ruffles that we needed to iron out. And the first being the 11th Amendment. The 11th Amendment was passed and ratified within a very short period of time in order to overrule Supreme Court case Chisholm v. Georgia, which had to do with abrogating state sovereign immunity. Um, the, the framers uh, arguably left a little bit of ambiguity in Article 3, Section 2, as to the jurisdiction of the United States. And the Supreme Court made an interpretation that was contrary to uh, public opinion at the time. Um, Mr. Chisholm in the state of Georgia was trying to sue over rights in South Carolina, I think, if I remember the facts correctly. And uh, the, the court went against what was the common knowledge at the Constitutional Convention, but they went off what they thought the text was of, of Article 3. And so the 11th Amendment abrogated that 
jurisdiction of the federal judiciary and, and gave the states a little bit more of the immunity that they had enjoyed. And remember, it's important that the, the states were sovereign before the federal government. The states created the federal government. And the, the basic assumption underlying with the 11th Amendment is that the states did not mean to cede any of their sovereignty. We have a co-sovereign federal system between the United States and the states united, but there was no intent for the states to give up their own sovereignty uh, in, in ratifying the Constitution. The, the second being that the, the 12th Amendment, the contingent election of the 18, 1800, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr were, were head to head, and Alexander Hamilton and other Federalists, realizing John Adams didn't have a shot at all, uh, threw their support behind Jefferson in the House of Representatives. Per Article One, the, the House, Article Two rather, the House gets to decide the presidential election if the Electoral College cannot. And at the time, each elector would cast uh, a single vote, and the number one vote getter would be president, second would be vice president. And that turned out to not, you know, once we realized that factions would develop, we realized this probably wasn't the, the best system. Uh, John Adams famously said that the vice president of the United States was the most worthless position in the new government. And we went to this system under the 12th Amendment where we could, electors would cast one vote for president and one for vice president. And, and so, I mean, within the first few decades after ratifying our constitution and enshrining the, the, the structure of our government, we realized that we had to iron out some of those wrinkles. And so it's not beyond our capacity uh, as states or as, as a people to make those amendments. And we've, we've ratified a total of 27 amendments to the Constitution, the most recent one being in 1992. Uh, it was actually the 27th Amendment was proposed back at the founding. It just took forever to get ratified. But all of those amendments took place before social media, before uh, the Internet, before we had the tools that we have now as a public to affect that change. But the constitution requires two thirds of the states or two thirds of Congress to propose an amendment and requires three quarters of the states to ratify. And uh, the, the common implied condition today is that the, there are always gonna be 13 states that will hold out. And so amending the constitution just doesn't seem to be a real uh, realistic option to those wanting to affect structural change to the constitution. Uh, and so the only other way to alter a constitutional provision is for the Supreme Court to come up with a new interpretation. And since the new, well, the New Deal, even before that, uh, we don't have to talk about substantive due process and the, the muddle that it is, but the, the court has over the years reinterpreted or redefined the limits of government power without the need for a constitutional amendment. And unlike a statute, if the court were to interpret a statute, Congress could always revise the statute. But there's no way that we could overturn a Supreme Court constitutional interpretation, uh, save for an amendment. And, and so, like I said, the, the trend has been politics by litigation. Let's get it to that third branch, because that's how we can we can affect a structural change. And to, to the to the the. Um, penultimate question that you asked, are we willing to sacrifice the structure of our constitution for political ends? Uh, I think it's a dangerous precedent. I think it's a dangerous way to go. And we've seen other countries do this. What makes our constitution so valuable and enduring is the separation of powers. Um, the Bill of Rights by themselves mean nothing. Uh, and in fact, 
a number of federalists back at the founding would have argued the Bill of Rights isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. Um, because the real protection of your liberty as an American comes from the dispersion of the state. The Congress fundamentally has what is the, the principal power of government, the power to make the rules. A separate branch has to prosecute you for a crime. And then a third branch has to adjudicate it. And only when all three branches of government are in agreement as to what the standard is, what the rule of society, what the law is, only then is the individual at risk of losing liberty. And muddling those, and that, that's where our defense comes from, is the fact that we have distributed power horizontally across those branches and vertically between the federal government and the states. And that, that's the real protection of liberty. And I don't think we have that conversation today. We're more concerned about meeting my immediate need. What policy do I want to see, uh, you know, enacted? And there's also this complex of, uh, I find it very fitting that you label your, your podcast searching for political identity. I think all too often, rather than thinking, what what is my stance on this issue or what is the logical conclusion of this issue? What do I want to advocate for? And then on a series of issues kind of say, well, I align as a conservative or a liberal. More and more what happens is I'm a Bernie person or I am a progressive or I am a hardline conservative. Therefore, I must believe this thing on this issue. And that really detracts from the intellectual discussion that, you know, you're, you're trying to promote. Um, so all of that is a very long winded beginning to answer your question, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, the first thing that I want to comment on is I really like how you did not in any way dismiss the concerns of progressives and activists today. In other words, I heard you say that, hey, today the deal basically is that you're always going to have 13 states that are going to hold out. You're never going to reach the numbers that you need to get a constitutional amendment passed today. I don't know if that's true, but I hear you what you're saying, that that's pretty much the assumption everyone makes. My question to you would be, is it really true that you're always going to have 13? In other words, are the progressives right to ditch that search for the numbers that you need to get the amendment? Or is it understandable that they're seeking to go directly to the Supreme Court and to create policy by litigation? I don't think so. And I'm actually going to go on a bit of a tangent here with uh, the 18th and uh, 21st Amendments, which are probably the, the two most unknown amendments. So the my 18th favorite one, My favorite ones. Oh, oh, excellent. Well, especially the 21st. Um, could care less about the 18th. But yeah, so the, the 18th Amendment, for those listeners who don't know, was the one that enacted prohibition. And so it was proposed by Congress, two thirds vote, and it was ratified by three quarters of the states. And how we got there, I, I actually did a panel back in the fall with a couple of professors for the, the Federalist Society. We had a, a, an interesting discussion on this. Um, after the Civil War, the, the abolitionist movement uh, transitioned into to other types of political movements, namely uh, votes for women. Women's suffrage was, was a large one. And then a, a, a separate one was the temperance movement. And you had the, the second great awakening of, of um, the Christian church in America. You had uh, a strong movement to temper 
alcoholism. Uh, and, and in fact, the, the cirrhosis rates back then were absolutely insane. The number of people that could destroy themselves with alcohol. Uh, and the, the average human male in America would consume, I believe that the statistic was uh, two and a half bottles, what we would call a fifth today, two and a half bottles of whiskey per week, um, which is just an insane amount of alcohol for, for one person. But you had a, a large influx of immigrants, particularly from Ireland and, and Italy, uh, strong Catholic roots. Uh, with them came their, their traditions of, of drinking. And in large urban centers, you had these concentrations of urban workers and the establishment of saloons where you could go and get a free lunch at this saloon provided you, you drink. And so a number of the working class men would go and blow their paychecks on drink and, and food in the middle of the day and at night. And so you, you had this rampant alcohol problem across the country. And so the temperance movement gained a lot of steam to really temper that, particularly in rural areas. And so the, the end result is that the temperance movement, the votes for women movement, um, kind of came together and got the 16th, 17th, and 18th Amendments passed. Uh, the 16th being the power of the federal government to tax individual income. Previously, the Supreme Court had struck down a congressional attempt to tax federal income as a direct tax in violation of Article 1, Section 9. And uh, the only way to get to federal income tax was through a constitutional amendment. And the, the progressives, as you would call them at the time, or the temperance movement, votes for women, they were all kind of on board because at that point, about 40 to 50 percent of the federal budget came from excise taxes, mainly a tax on whiskey. Uh, <laughs> whiskey has had a strong history of, up until the 1910s when, when you had the 16th Amendment ratified. Uh, whiskey was the primary source of revenue for the federal government. And so for, before you could get rid of the whiskey tax and get rid of whiskey to fund the United States, you had to have another source of income. So they all kind of hopped on the bandwagon of supporting the 16th Amendment, the 17th Amendment to go to the direct election of senators. And then the 18th Amendment followed. And then the 19th, which gave women suffrage. So the 18th being in there, they got rid of uh, intoxicating spirits along the way. And over the next 10, 12 years, the country as a whole ha had a huge cultural shift because, uh, like we're learning today with marijuana, um, if you want it, you're going to know where to get it. And the the organized crime syndicates uh, jumped on this opportunity and you had huge importations of, of liquor from through Canada, uh, the rum runners up through Florida and through Tampa. Um, huge expansion of the resources and the funding for these organized crime groups. And in response, the federal government had to create federal entities that would enforce these laws because county sheriffs and state state boards really didn't care about prohibition. They weren't going to enforce it. In fact, most states, your local sheriff could be found at a speakeasy. And so the federal government had to step in to actually fulfill this enforcement role. And so you had a huge expansion of federal police power that had not been there before. And at the same time, the, the people came to realize prohibition doesn't work. This, this kind of, this whole complex, it, it's just not working. They just transitioned the market from a legitimate market to a black market. And we've empowered these, these crime groups. Um, it, prohibition also didn't bar the possession. So if you still had possession of, if you were super rich and you had stores and sellers of, of booze, you had enough to last, but then you just became part of the black market. 
so it just didn't work. And so by the 1930s, we, we came around to the idea of we should do away with the 18th Amendment. So the 21st Amendment, we repealed. And what's interesting about the 21st Amendment is that it is the only one that was ratified by state conventions and not by state legislatures. Uh, the only one ratified in that, in that manner. So when, when we talk about, oh, the Constitution is so hard to amend, and it's just such a hard barrier for us to get over, I, I take a slightly dissenting view on it because we've done it in the past. We did it twice. We, we got rid of alcohol and we brought it back. So it's not, it's not a process that we are incapable of. Uh, it, is, it is just a very difficult one. And uh, that was 100 years ago. Today we have tools that, that would make it easier, in my opinion. Um, but that, that is a structural question. Do we, you know, how, how do we want to go about these things? And, and since then, as I've already alluded to a couple of times, the trend has just been litigation. Let's go to the courts. Um, and the danger there, the real danger is that all you need are nine lawyers in black robes to decide what your rights are. And that is just fundamentally against what, what we believe as Americans, popular sovereignty, rule by the people, uh, not not rule by philosopher kings on the Supreme Court. So, uh, yeah, it's a laborious process, but we have that process and we know it works because we've done it in the past. Perhaps we're just a little too lazy today to embrace it. Or conversely, there, there's just no super majority. Right. It sounds like the broad point is that it's been done, and not only has it been done, but with the 18th and the 21st, it's like it was done within a relatively short period of time. We said, oh, we did this, but, you know, we changed our mind. It really is possible. That's the point. Yep. And so to your point earlier about how the separation of powers, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive, of course, not in that order, the separation of powers being the thing that really protects our liberty. That is really fascinating to me when you said that the Bill of Rights, according to the people who wrote it, is not worth the paper it's written on without that separation of power. So given the importance of the separation of power, my question to you, transitioning now to talk about the New Deal, is that when the government kind of changed the identity of the federal government basically from a weak separated federal government to a more concentrated, powerful federal government? Is that basically what happened with the New Deal? Uh, I think that's when it started. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily think the federal government was weak beforehand. It just had very specific enumerated powers that were strictly adhered to. Uh, so that the New Deal era, well, uh, kind of got to go a little bit back to the progressive era again. So going into the 1900s, Karl uh, Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto and the ideas of socialism began festering in the early 19th century or the late 19th century. And it reached America's shores. And, and there were these calls for price controls and um, not necessarily universal basic income, but some would, would at the time were progressive ideas. And if you think about the, the structure of the government and the fact that Federal judges had lifetime tenure, and even in states, they had long tenure. When state legislatures would pass progressive policies, the backstop 
for the wealthy or entrenched conservatives of the time would be the judiciary. Uh, and so you have this famous case, Lochner v. New York. Um, New York passed a law that required bakers to work no more than 60 hours a week. And the Supreme Court of the United States struck it down and said this violates the right of the employee to contract, the right of the of the worker to his own property and to the fruits of his labor. Um, New York had passed it primarily as a health concern for, for bakers because th th there actually was a, a significant amount of uh, liability and tragedies that occurred at the time. And another discussion with, with Lochner is that that statute who, who would have the power in the state government to lobby for that for that statute? It was the large conglomerate baking groups. And who did it hurt? Well, it hurt the mom and pop shops. If you were an immigrant family and you had a small family run bakery, you know, you would want to work as long as you can because that's more profit. But now all of a sudden with this statute, you're, you're restricted to 60 hours a week. Um, so the, the, the big bakeries could cover on that on that lost time, but the small bakeries could not. And so the court struck it down and said, you know, this violates property rights, contract rights. But it's nowhere in the text of the Constitution. They rely on the due process clause, what's called substantive due process. The idea that you have a right to live in a society that has rational laws and that no legislature would ever pass an irrational law. And this law is just irrational. It just doesn't have a rational connection to what it's trying to do. Uh, in dissent, Justice Holmes, one of the most famous dissents in, in all constitutional law, talk about how we should have deference to the legislatures, that this is a policy question and the state legislature should be entrusted with, with making that decision. But again, at the time, the, the entrenched conservatives, if you want to call them that, were, were in the courts. Uh, and that, that has shifted over, over you know, as, as the political shifts have occurred over the past century. But Lochner created a precedent where we had this Property rights, contract right, we don't really know how to define it, but we're, we're, the courts are going to prevent a lot of these progressive policies from going through. So fast forward about 20 years, you get into the New Deal. And we had the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt's elected in a, a couple of landslides and has this massive, um, you know, popular mandate to, to fix things. And the federal government arguably was the only entity that could at the time consolidated banking, you know, the power to, with the new federal income tax to raise revenue, to take on debt on behalf of the country to, to spawn economic growth. Um, and so that's when you really started seeing the first attempts of the federal government to take on these powers, particularly under the commerce power, the power to regulate interstate commerce. And as we become more and more connected, that line has certainly become blurred. That's a federalism concern, not necessarily a separation of powers concern, but uh, the court for a long time was preventing a lot of FDR's attempts to expand federal power to combat the Great Depression. And after FDR famously threatened to, to pack the court and just put more judges on it, uh, the, there was a shift and there was a little bit of a, a kneeling. You know, the, the court kind of bent its knee to what was happening with the expansion of federal power, the expansion of the administrative state. And it kind of had this rampant all the way through World War II this huge increase in, in what the federal government could do. Um, and Congress, by and large, not only uh, created these entities, but kind of made them semi-autonomous. So we didn't really have these independent commissions. You had the Interstate Commerce Commission back in the 1800s, but they were relatively small. After the New Deal, you have alphabet soup. You know, FBI, ATF, uh, 
tons of labor groups and all these boards and entities are just these separate administrative states, but they are nowhere in the constitution. How do we, how do we deal with these things? Are they executive? Are they legislative? Do they, do they create law? Do they adjudicate cases? Uh, do they pass rules? Do they only enforce rules? And so all of these questions kind of got answered at the tail end of the new deal into the, the 60s and administrative law, by the way, on the whole is just a, a complete interesting amalgam in the study. Um, the, the federal government assumed a lot of power and also created this fourth head, the, the, the bureaucracy. And Congress likes it because now they don't have to make policy decisions. They get to displace the responsibility onto the administration. So uh, take a, a highways, for example, you know, a horse could only run so fast, but you can't really speed on a horse. Um, but once you have cars on the road and you have these interstate connections, you have a need for speed limits. And Congress doesn't want to say, well, this little stretch of road, we're going to pass a statute that says this stretch of road has a speed limit of 80 miles an hour. We're just going to create the Department of Transportation and we're going to let them have the power to decide all the safety regulations. OK, cool. Uh, and, and there's huge debate even today over how much of the lawmaking prerogative Congress can delegate to an agency. Sorry, guys, the audio just cut out on me on my end. Um, apologize for that. Cam will be right back in three, two, one. Yeah, so uh, I think where I was, um, with, with there's some ambiguity as to how much you can delegate to the administrative state as far as lawmaking goes. But from a congressional standpoint, if you're a, a, a congressman or a senator looking to be reelected, this is a really good problem for you because you don't have to make decisions. You can displace responsibility and accountability for the rulemaking to somebody who's not politically accountable. And so as a congressperson, you can create a statute or delegate that authority to the agency and then just say, well, uh, you know, it's the agency that that's making up that rule. Blame the administration. It's the president's problem. And so what you see is, is this, this, like I said before, the blurring of lines of separation of powers. You have executive agencies that are nominally supposed to be completely controlled by the president. He is the, the head of the executive branch. But now they have the power to make these rules. And so every election cycle, you see this. You see a Republican get in office and he says, I'm going to tighten down the borders. And then you see a Democrat get in office and say, well, I'm going to go with amnesty and loosen the borders. And you think, well, what, these are rules. These are laws. Why, did, why does the administration get to decide these things? It's because we've tacitly approved of just giving this administrative state and giving the executive a lot of this authority. And the reality is, even if you think back to Roman times, you had a, a consul who was appointed for a year. And he had a limited amount of power. But once it became an emperor, the person you choose for that role matters so much more. When you put so much weight, so much stock, so much authority into one office, the office holder, that choice becomes much, much, much more paramount. And arguably, part of our, our political culture today is because we have put so much stock into the White House and not in Congress or other places in, in the federal government or, or in the federal government anyway. You know, nobody cares about their state legislatures or their, uh, you know, what their governor does for the most part, because we're all so focused on having one one 
president, one king, if you will. So, but again, this is a structural question. But before, when I spoke about the distinction between policy questions and structural questions, this is a structural problem. Uh, and, and as a matter of, you know, just the, the, the doctrine of, of what our Constitution enshrined and the blurring of these lines, it, we, we deviated from being able to just pocket those policy questions where they should be. Because now the question of what is the power of the chief executive is a policy question. Does, does the president have the power to uh, to open the borders or to shut down the borders? And as a second order effect of that is what are the what's the power of the courts? So every so often you'll see on the news federal judge issues injunction to prevent president from doing X, Y, Z or federal federal court strikes down agency rule or so on. Um, and so now, like I said, politics by litigation, you have a plaintiff who doesn't like the president or an agency's decision under a certain president delegated that authority by Congress. And they go and file a lawsuit. They have to make sure they have it in the right federal district. They get the right judge and they can get an injunction. And that injunction is a court order for the federal government to not do something. And the forum shopping of looking for the right judge, whether that judge can issue a universal injunction that applies across the entire government. These are questions. These are structural questions that we have not addressed. But the end result is that you have an election cycle. You have a new president. You have a new composition in Congress. You have a Congress trying to repeal some statutes that granted power to a president. You have an agency under that president that's passing new rules because they only have four years to do it. And then you have some judge that was appointed probably by the other party that's going to come along and stop it from happening. And so it's this process that is very, very different, very, very different way of making law than what is in Article One, which says the House, the Senate and the president pass a law. And that is it. Right. Presentment and bicameralism. But that, that's not the practical and the, the, the process that is in effect today. Uh, so. I think the New Deal was the beginning of all of this. And throughout the 60s into the 70s, there was this distrust of agencies. There was a huge component of it that had to do with environmentalism. Agencies were given a lot of discretion. And then the D.C. Circuit really started to restrict agencies, particularly under Republican presidents, uh, into the Reagan years. And then um, it's kind of reversed and come back again. And just recently, with with the current Supreme Court composition, you're starting to see questions about delegation, questions about how much power we're giving these administrative agencies. And maybe it was warranted during the New Deal. Maybe we needed it at the time. But again, to the fundamental question, are we are we willing to sacrifice these structural institutions uh, for the sake of political expediency? And I think we're, we're starting to revisit a lot of legal scholars. Uh, and especially in, in large part due to Justice Scalia, a lot of scholars are starting to revisit this question and, and, and rethink. Have we been doing it right? Do we still need to be doing it this way? I think it's there's so much interesting stuff to unpack there. If the separation of powers is the thing that provided the liberty in our constitution and the new deal is the beginning point where we started to blur those lines of the separation of powers. I think the 
implication there is when you have a government that is so centralized, if you will, or not separated, that all that concentrated power, you know, the simple phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, historically, we're afraid of concentrated power. And so it sounds like in the New Deal, we were reacting to current events and we felt like we needed to make a change. But I think the most important thing you said is America is a country where we have to constantly refresh our homepage, so to speak. We have to kind of always be thinking, okay, maybe this was right then, but is it right now? And I don't think the average person has any idea what the delegation doctrine is. I know I didn't before I went to law school. And it was just this implied assumption that the president, the administration really, has all this power. And you never even knew that it's the lawmakers that are supposed to be making law. You know, go figure. And so no wonder you always see the news reports. Congress's approval rating is at 20%, 30%. It's like, it's the most ridiculously low number you ever heard. And it makes sense to me now because they're not doing anything. They're, they're, they're literally just posturing while other people make rules. And that in and of itself is a very interesting topic. On one hand, I understand because, hey, you elect uh, some senators, some uh, House of Representatives, to pe people to the House of Representatives. It's like, do we really expect them to be experts in everything? No, of course not. They, we probably expect them to be representatives of the people. Okay, fine. So I understand that if you want to make uh, a rule about the environment or space or something really important and consequential, that you would want to defer to experts. But at the same time, it does seem very bizarre that the lawmakers are basically no longer making law. I'll give you an example. The uh, And this comes from a recent case, 2019, Gundy v. United States. Uh, and the dissent written by Justice Gorsuch is absolutely brilliant uh, when you look at the separation of powers question. So in Gundy, the, the statute at issue was SORNA, the Sexual Offenders Registration uh, something act. Uh, but basically what it did is it required all sex offenders to register in this, this federal database. Uh, subject to regulation by the attorney general. There was a particular clause that had that said if you were convicted of a sexual offense prior to a certain date, you may or may not have had to register. Or I didn't actually say that. It said the, the attorney general has the discretion to decide how you register and what the penalty is. Um, and there, there's a, a debate between the majority and Gundy and between Justice Gorsuch over, well, what what discretion was given to the attorney general? And the majority says, well, we, we're going to kind of assume based on the language that they're supposed to register and the attorney general just gets to regulate the time and place. But that's not what the plain meaning showed. And I, I forget the exact verbiage right now. Justice Gorsuch said, no, if you look at the plain meaning of the statute, it literally gives the attorney general the authority to decide if you have to register and what the penalty will be if you don't. So we have given the chief prosecutor of the United States, the power to decide a crime and to decide who has committed it uh, <laughs> and when you have committed it. And this is this just is this is not why couldn't Congress just be more clear? Because it's their role to make the law. Why? Why have this, you know, 
passage that could be amorphously interpreted. interpreted. Uh, and I think Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, as you alluded to earlier, and even uh, despite modern thoughts in conservative circles on just on Chief Justice Roberts, I think even just Chief Justice, Justice Roberts uh, on separation of powers issues uh, is still very much a, a traditionalist in the idea that we need to have some more clearly defined lines. And I think Gundy is, is a good example of that. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the average person who's not a sex offender doesn't really care what Sorna says, nor how we interpret it. Um, but the principles are still there. And that those are things that we don't talk about in, in you know, today's political uh, climate. Um, I wanted to kind of link, link back to the discussion on negative versus positive rights. So during the New Deal, there were, were attempts by the federal government to enshrine that this kind of, you know, Social Security came out of, out of the New Deal. There was an attempt to confer some welfare benefits, housing benefits, things like that. And there were a few challenges in the courts. And as a matter of law, the Supreme Court said this, the due process clause does not confer welfare benefits. There is no right to housing. There is no right to uh, a, a universal income or things like that changed a little bit in the field of administrative law where the Social Security Administration, if they want to take away your benefits, you're entitled to a hearing to due process of law because the court said there is a property interest that has vested in your welfare benefit. And before it can be taken away, you're entitled to a hearing. The government can't just cut it off, which is interesting that they found this quasi property right in a benefit that the government conferred upon you. Uh, but they, the court has not gone so far as to say you have a right to housing. It is a human right or you have a right to income. It is a human right uh, because we, we've largely stayed away from that positive, um, that positive rights debacle. I, I mentioned earlier, Hungary is having a huge problem with this. A lot of ex-Soviet bloc countries where you had state run economies are, are having a hard time reconciling this. The. There are courts and there are judges that have tried to bring about uh, this kind of positive rights view. Um, there, there's a case out of the Ninth Circuit last year, Juliana, the United States, a district judge from the Central District of California was sitting on that panel by designation. And the argument was from a bunch of, of teenagers, really, that the, the government was not curbing climate change. And they argue that we have a right under the due process clause rationally to live in a society that has uh, no emissions and, and that is free from from global warming. And the majority of that panel said, no, uh, we're not going to go that far. You're asking us to issue an injunction to order the other two branches of government to pass laws to curb climate change. That's a policy question. It's a political question. We're, we're not going there. This district judge in dissent took the line that no, um, the due process clause gives the court the power to define what rights are. And if we say you have a right to live in a climate change free environment, then, uh, then that's a right that must be protected by the other two branches. And so it's within our power to to correct the other two branches and tell them that this is a right that should not be infringed. Um, other other courts. And again, these are unelected life appointed federal judges who have had the idea of you have a right to universal basic income. Um, 
most recently, again, Central District of California, Judge uh, Carter. I want to say his last name was Carter, but it, it was just last month um, in April or early, early May. Uh, the, the, the county of Los Angeles for a long time has been dealing with a huge homelessness problem. And this federal judge ordered the county of L.A. within seven days to put one billion dollars in escrow for the court to supervise the disbursement of to provide housing to homeless people. It's like, well, you, you know, very compassionate. Good for you, judge. But where where do you get this authority? And I actually have not read the opinion. Full disclosure, I don't know what power of the federal government, what he was relying on for his jurisdiction. But uh, effectively, you're defining a right and then forcing the other branches to obey. Well, where, where is the stopping point to this argument? Do you have a right to universal basic income? Do you have a right to a certain amount of wealth? Do you have a right to a certain uh, food quality? And these are all positive right questions. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm not taking a position as to whether positive rights, welfare benefits or college funding or anything like that funded by the government is a good question. I'm simply saying these are policy questions on how to spend tax dollars. And there are two branches of government that are elected by the people to make those decisions, not <laughs> appointed, unelected black robes. Um, but again, back to my original thread of politics by litigation, more and more, the trend is, is that if we can just get a judge to agree with us, we can have this new positive right um, and we can somehow get it awarded to us. But a lot of this, like I said, Lochner into the New Deal, that's where it all kind of started. But some of this, some of this substantive due process of, of just making up rights is, is kind of amorphous because there is no stopping point and do we really and the, the, here's the real danger Brian do we do we want to trust judges to make those decisions um, because positive rights that can be conf if you can come up with new rights uh, then there's kind of an implication that other rights can be taken away and I think that's where the danger really comes uh, Roe v Wade uh, whatever, standpoint you have on the, on the moral question of Roe v. Wade and, and abortion from, from a legal perspective, it's just an indefensible opinion. It's, it's illogical. When you, when you look at the, the, the progeny that has come after and all the precedent that was before, um, the, the right was kind of just made up out of thin air under the due process clause, but it's nowhere in the text of the constitution. And if you compare that with say the second amendment, which has pretty clear and unambiguous language and uh, the history is somewhat debatable. Great case on that would be Young v. Hawaii out of the Ninth Circuit from a couple months ago. Um, how, we, there are some states that are really curbing the Second Amendment, despite the historical evidence as to what it has meant. So I, I think when we start messing with the structure of these institutions and we don't really focus and answer the question of who gets to decide it just adds a whole nother variable to these policy questions in, in today's age. Let me rephrase your basic point, I think. And well, here's the question for progressives, in my opinion, from where I stand. Here's the question, guys. Is there anything wrong with changing the rules to the game if you're not winning? I mean, I hate to, that. That's the unavoidable question, right? I mean, 
we can be nice and we can be apolitical and we can respect the differing views and we do that all day. But at the end of the day, what's going on here, correct me if I'm wrong, is in general and by nature of the definition of the words, progressives want change. They want to, they want change. And I think what you're telling me is there used to be a very simple and clear way that you enact change in America. And over time, that process has blurred. And it's probably to the benefit of the progressives because it's more efficient. Hey, instead of having three hurdles to jump through, just give me one. Like you said, the path of least resistance. So the question, is there anything wrong with changing the rules to the game if you're not winning? And I don't mean to offend progressives. If you listen to my first episode, you know, I grew up in a liberal house, my father, my uncles. I mean, my, many family members, not all, but I have tons of progressive views and family. And I think the unavoidable reality to them with peace and love, I would say to them is you're trying to change the rules. So you're trying to make a change. Totally valid. Beautiful. That's what the world's about. Be the change you want to see in the world. Wonderful. But if your argument is going to be, well, I can't get it done the way the textbook, the manual, the Constitution says I should, so let me bypass it. That is really interesting because, of course, on one hand, you got to look at the issue and say, well, this person is just trying to give health care to everybody or housing. That's great. That's a great thing. It's a great idea. Well, let me retract that. It's a great thought. It's a great thought. But if you're not able to bring about that change in the way that the Constitution, or let me just call it the programming manual, the book of instructions, whatever, says you should, it really. Be at what point are you just trying to cheat? At what point do you go from being a true visionary and someone who wants to make a difference in the world to are you actually hurting the country in a sense because you're taking us away from that structure that has given us the country we have today. And I think a lot of people, Cam, would say, look, the country's not working for me. I live in the, you know, pick a group or a person that a progressive might want to draw your attention to and say, look at this person. They're poor. They are screwed up and down, left and right by life. Look, everybody is responsible for their own lives and everyone needs to take control of their own lives. But I think you can also say, look, some people are born into tougher circumstances than others, of course. So I think the progressive would say, look, I get it. The structure is beautiful of the constitution. It's important and it's gotten us to where we are. And there's a lot of good in where we are now, but it's not good enough. That's what they're going to say, right? It's not good enough. It needs to be better. We need to provide housing for people. We need, And so my thing is, the way I've always approached it, and I don't think I'm being too broad here or too kind of trippy here, but as I'm going through law school and thinking about where I stand politically and the family that I have on the left and the community that I, that I grew up in, which was conservative, and I'm always trying to figure out who's right, I think I realize that, well, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but the point is, is there anything wrong with changing the rules of the game if you're not winning? Um, the, the, the progressives will say, we need to make this change. I don't care about the protections that the separation of powers gave us. That's all fine and dandy, but that's 250 years ago. Like Alex said to me at the wine tasting party, who cares what they said, Cam? 
you know, we needed those rules at that time. Now we need different rules because we have a different society, a different set of problems. So I think the question is for me, and this is where I was going, the big picture for me, and I don't think it's too flowery, is do we accept the system of property rights or not? Do we, hold on, do we, are, do we accept the system that we inherited from England, uh, the, you know, the basic structure of the law and that we modified and made our own? Do we accept that? Are we going to stay within those bounds and tweak it? Because no one is going to argue that you can't tweak. You, you We started this conversation by talking about the process to tweak. No one is saying you can't tweak out the wrinkles. The question is, are you, are you going to, do you believe that the framework we have, which is a system of property rights, basically, do you think that can be tweaked to bring the people in who are out and help them and help them rise? Or do you believe that the system we have is inherently exclusionary and that the only the best thing to do to achieve what's right, you know, correct from your point of view, if you're progressive, is to dismantle the system and build a new one? I think a lot of people are who cares what the framer said, who cares what the system we inherited is? We have new problems today. And I am still trying to figure out where I stand, but I do not rush to that point of view. I do not rush to who cares. I do not blow past the initial threshold question that you raised of what are we talking about? Are we talking about a political issue or are we talking about a structural issue? Those, those questions are important to me. And I feel like most people who are not in law school, who are not really plugged into these issues, they don't understand the importance of that question. And I know it's so important. That's why you started with it. They don't understand at all the importance of that question. And so they just see an old, in, outdated, in, inefficient system in their point of view that's preventing them from achieving justice. And, and I think what we have to do is just raise the awareness level of people and say, hey, no one is saying you shouldn't advocate for your beliefs, but do it in a way that at least understand Forget respecting, but at least understand why we are, you know, how the system came about. And last thing before I turn it back to you is, well, let me just turn it back to you now. Well, just escape me. What do you think? Dude, there's so much to unpack there. I'm, I'm kind of sad we only have an hour. I might have to have more sessions. So th there's a lot to get to there. Um, I think, well, I think you hit the nail on the head. So when we're talking about the structural problem versus policy problems and where they intersect, particularly with progressivism on the field of, say, socialism, um, the real intersection point is property rights. And, and I think you really hit that nail on the head. Fundamentally, in a socialist communist society, uh, the, the state owns everything. Property rights are secondary to the state's rights to regulate property. Um, and when you start dishing out, you know, cash, housing, what have you, uh, the, the question of what is the role of property, private property, that really does come to the forefront. I think as a structural matter, you have a real problem with progressive ideology and not, not all progressive ideology, but uh, some proposals will run into a brick wall when they get to the Constitution. So like I said, 100 years ago, 110 years ago, before the 16th Amendment, the Supreme Court struck down federal income tax when Congress tried to do that. They said it was a direct tax. Today, you have some senators, Elizabeth Warren and others from the Northeast, who are saying we should have a wealth tax. Well, a tax on wealth is not a tax on income. It, it is arguably outside the 16th Amendment, 
which means it needs to come from some other power within the Constitution. If you go to Article 1, Section 9, and you again go to the direct tax or capitation prohibition, there is a very, very strong constitutional law argument that a tax on a direct tax on someone's wealth by the federal government is unconstitutional. That that is just not, it was never within the vision of the original federal government, and there's no amendment like the 16th that would give you the power to tax wealth directly. Elizabeth Warren is a, is a constitutional scholar and a Harvard law professor. So, I mean, she probably knows those arguments. But again, politicians looking to get elected, it's about securing votes, not necessarily securing them with legitimate proposals. Uh, Joe Biden even said that he was going to take your AR-15. And after the election, speaking to a bunch of supporters, he's on the record pretty much saying, yeah, there's, there's no way I can just repossess AR-15s. It was a nice promise, but I can't do it. And, and you see that completely along the line. So there is a point where certain policy questions, when they start infringing on rights or implications that are in the text of the Constitution, policy does run into the structure. And which one wins is going to depend on who's on the Supreme Court. So I'll leave that there for a second. But you hit the nail with property rights. And our property rights stem from our British heritage and our understanding thereof. I'm going to go backwards in time. Uh, and I'll eventually get to 17, the 1770s, but I want to take a quick stop in the 1880s when Karl Marx published the Communist Manifesto. So if you can put yourself in post-Civil War America, 18, late 1800s, in Europe, you had Marx publishing his theories in Germany and, and uh, huge amounts of poverty in Russia. It was the, one of the last absolute monarchies in the world. England was still a monarchy, but it was becoming more of a constitutional monarchy under the Hanovers and then into the Windsors. George V really kind of reformed reformed that. But after the Glorious Revolution in the 1600s, the you know, parliament actually cemented itself as a constitutional block in England. So it was more of a constitutional monarchy than an absolute monarchy. But the age of absolute monarchies in Europe is kind of going by the wayside. France had a couple of revolutions, a lot of heads chopped off. The Holy Roman Empire is becoming the Weimar Republic. You know, you have these shifts towards more democratic structures of government throughout Europe. And you have Karl Marx, who says the revolution of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie, the have nots against the haves. We are many. They are few possession by the workers. You know, we can create this worker run state. And that eventually takes root with Lenin and then goes on you know, through the Russian Revolution. In contrast to everything going on in Eastern Europe, in the United States at the time, you have a booming, blossoming industrial revolution. And you have judges like uh, Lemuel Shaw on the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, who actually did away with a couple of common law rules for railroads involving common carriers to limit their liability so that railroads would have better profits and be able to uh, expand. And that was in the 1930s, into the 1830s, 1960s. But then the, the common trend throughout the latter half of the 19th century in the United States was the creation of the corporation, the limited liability corporation. So previously under the British law that we inherited for partners, if you were to have a business venture and you had some sort of a tort or a mishap or something that happened, the partners or the sole proprietor of a business or an enterprise would be solely liable, personally liable for all of those things. With the creation of the corporation as a separate legal entity, instead of Cam running my you know, machine shop, I 
and the owner or the officer of this corporation, a separate legal thing that owns all of this stuff. And so what the corporation did is it fundamentally changed from a legal perspective, law informs economics, law informs culture, and then the culture informs the law. What it did is it created this entity that would be liable without the inventor or the owner being liable. And so the corporation, as a, as a legal fiction, when it was created, allowed American entrepreneurs like John Rockefeller and Carnegie and um, you know, Tesla and JP Morgan, you could take more risk. And as you take more risk and you take more shots on, on new industries and new enterprises, you can come up with Standard Oil or U.S. Steel. And so the, the corporation, from a, from a legal perspective, it was a sea that had great fertile soil in the United States. And by limiting the liability of business owners and entrepreneurs, you had this huge boom. And capitalism flourished in the United States, primarily because of the limited liability assigned to these corporations. And so there is a risk there that it didn't come, you know, without without its downfalls, because if you had an injured employee or somebody who was injured in a tort, there was limited recovery that they could have against a company. They, you know, the, there, there are trade offs when you make these types of institutions. But if you compare the capitalist risk taking pull yourself up by your bootstraps, American culture of industry to what was going on across the pond over in Europe. Uh, you have two very different ideologies and two very different cultures that developed well into the 20th century. And the, 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 the idea, you know, part of the reason why those courts and like Lochner, early anti-progressive era courts would strike down a lot of these socially progressive policies because they were afraid of that ideology working its way across, rightfully or wrongfully. Um, and Holmes, I think, actually had a pretty objective view of it. Uh, and, and again, I'm not debating the policy or whether these are good idea ideas or ideologies to have. I'm simply, you know, trying to lay the framework of where it came from in the structure. So property rights, the idea that I have the rights, the fruits of my labor, uh, and that this thing is inherently mine and no one else's. I have exclusive control over it. That is deeply rooted in American culture and legal culture. And that is going to be a huge hurdle uh, for, for uh, fringe progressives to try to get over. Because um, Americans fundamentally, you know, like some people have their ranch and their cows and they get to sell the milk from those cows. It doesn't belong to the state. They are my cows. I have raised them. They are on my land. Uh, so that right is entrenched all the way back to the founding. And it's entrenched and it was codified in the Constitution, not even necessarily an amendment. I mean, parts of it show through in Article One, things that the federal government can't do to you. But the Fifth Amendment, especially with the takings clause and the due process clause, uh, and then recertified in the 14th Amendment when it was incorporated against the states. And prior to that, it was 1689, the English Declaration of Rights after the Glorious Revolution, when Parliament and the Crown finally made peace as to you have to have Parliament and a popular mandate to make law. You don't just get to be an absolute ruler. And prior to that, all the way back to 1215 with Magna Carta, if you actually go read Magna Carta, I, I actually had the privilege of reading 
putting my eyes on an original manuscript of the 1215 Magna Carta when I visited England um, about a year ago. It is all about property. It is all about property rights. Prior to that, King John, you had this small rebellion of the nobles, and this is where Robin of Loxley comes along, Robin Hood. Robin Hood didn't rob from the rich to feed the poor. That's a stupid Disney cartoon that came up with that, you know, little fox and, and the animated things that they, that they show you. Yeah, it's a kid's tale. Robin of Loxley, Loxley, it was about property rights. It was about the nobles being tired and pissed off that the king kept saying that he possessed all the land that they had, but a man's home was his castle. And an Englishman's home is his castle, even if it's just a shack. And so Magna Carta was the beginning of, you know, it's over almost a millennia ago where our British ancestors said like, this is, this is important to us that we have the right to property, to the exclusive control of what is inherently ours to possess that thing. Um, and that 800, 850, 900 years of history is enshrined in our constitution. And then you, you have these ideologies that come along that really challenge all of that root. And uh, I think the evidence over the past hundred years of progressive or socialist regimes as a structural matter prove that they uh, infringe on human rights, not just property, but other human rights. I mean, if you think about it, property is kind of the original right that the government protects. If you go to the Fifth Amendment, it says life, liberty and property. <laughs> you can't can't kill me without due process. You can't jail me without due process and you can't take my stuff without due process. And back to the question of what is the role of government? Fundamentally, at our roots, our founders believe that, that is the role of government is to protect life, liberty and property. And I think that's where the biggest hurdle is going to come in the, the coming years for, for very liberal ideologies is that you're going to have to grapple with the fact that it, it just flies in the face of the American foundation. Yeah. And I, I, so not only is it probably the biggest hurdle that they're going to have to overcome, as you just said, but also in my opinion, it's the crux of their argument. It's the most, it's the, not only is it the biggest hurdle, but it's the most important piece and it's a question that I'm going to be putting to the liberals and progressives that I'm going to have on this podcast. I'm going to say to them, hey, are you willing to give up your property in order to give property to everyone else? And really, like, would you be willing, really willing to do that? And they might say, well, yeah, if the system was really set up and all I had to do was hit a button and you know, I would do it. But when it comes time to get rid of your TV and your couch, are you really prepared to do that? Um, and again, this is the thing, the question that's always been bubbling in my mind, which is what's the best way forward? Are we going to tweak the system we have within the, the structure of it? Or are we going to blow it up and start over? And what are the pros and cons of that? I think that's like the underlying theme here. Yeah. So the, I think if you take a hard look at critical race theory and, and some of the, the ideologies that are being pushed there, this idea of deconstruction that the system as a whole, this entire system we inherited from the British of property rights, it's inherently flawed, or it, as a structural matter, it created the problems that we have today. Um, so we should just blow out that structure, do away with it, you know, forget reform, let's just deconstruct it, break it down and rebuild something new. Um, 
thing is, is when you ask, well, what is that something new? Uh, the proponents always disagree as to what something new should be. Um, and, and, and the theory, critical race theory is rooted in cultural Marxism, not economic Marxism necessarily, but the cultural Marxism. So instead of the haves and have nots, it's, it's from a cultural perspective of has and has nots or the oppressed versus the oppressors. And I understand the argument, um, but you wipe out the structure of what you have, the established legal institutions that you have, and you're going to rebuild it with something fairer, fairer to whom? Uh, and what is it really going to look like? And if it is completely remedial in its intent, when does it end? Or, does, or are we just replacing one oppression for another? Um, these questions are usually not well answered. Um, and and the, the danger, the real danger is you want to break down the structure that has protected rights. Granted, maybe not equally throughout history. And that's something that we've been grappling with and rightfully grappling with and we're still grappling with. And that, I think, is okay. That is how we develop as a society. But just doing away with that entire system altogether, can you really guarantee that your new system is going to be better? Uh, and, and Is the juice worth the squeeze? Are you prepared to go into the abyss? Yeah. And that is a question that I would pause on before taking the first step. And the other question is, it's uh, if you want to go back to, to, to like biblical roots. It's, uh, it's kind of unbiblical and Marx hated, hated religion to begin with, but you know, there, there's no aspect of forgiveness in this. There's some kind of inherent right just by the fact that one was not even that one was oppressed, that one's ancestors may have been oppressed. Um, and that the, the, at some point, at some juncture, looking at it rationally, we have to move on. We have to recognize it. And from a policy perspective, we can have remedies within the existing structure, and then we can move on as a society. But I think it is fanciful and somewhat dangerous, some of the proposals that are coming about today. And luckily for us, our constitution, I think, makes that those very, very difficult to employ by a simple majority. Uh, and if we end up getting there, I think it will be because there's wide, wide, wide support. But more and more, I think we're starting to realize that the loudest advocates in today's political sphere are not necessarily the most numerous, uh, and that there is a large contingent in the middle, like you, that is trying to trying to weigh and decide. They're in search of their identity of, can, can I reconcile this thing with what it means to be an American? If not, do I have to choose one or the other, or how can I find a blend of the two? And that discussion is the most important part, um, but it's... It is an incredibly complex issue, and we cannot miss the, ironically, you can't miss the trees for the forest. We have to look at the details. We have to have some tough discussions. We have to look at the historical and legal implications, and it's not just all as simple as saying, well, I'm right and you're wrong. Amen. That is a perfect place to leave it. Absolutely perfect. I cannot thank you enough, Cam, for what you've given me today. Uh, thank you so much. And I'd love to have you back if you do it again sometime. Anytime, man. Looking forward to it. I appreciate it, Cam. Have a great day. Thanks, you too, Brian. Talk to you soon. Bye.